what's a guy got to do? You heard this phrase, right? It's uttered by guys who, you know, trying to figure out. They're frustrated. They don't know how to get what they want. Or, you know, maybe they literally don't know how to get what they want. Or maybe they're just venting because they're not getting what they want. You know, they'll, you know, what's a guy got to do to get a little service around here, right? You know, you hear people say it like that. It's kind of sarcastic, you know. What's a guy got to do to get a good meal around here? Things like that. Uh, or this gym from the country music world. You know, what's a guy got to do to get a girl in this town? You, you know, hopefully you haven't heard that song. I, I've heard the chorus. That's all I know. So I apologize if there's more to it that I shouldn't, you know, be drawing, drawing reference to it. But anyway, uh, what's a guy got to do? That, that phrase, you know, you hear it. And this past Friday, you guys read from Luke chapter 10, and Jesus gives us a parable there in response to kind of one of these, what's a guy got to do sort of questions being asked by a lawyer. Remember that? Remember reading about that a couple days ago? Uh, in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, the Bible says, a lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? You hear it? You know, effectively, he's saying, what's a guy got to do? What's a guy got to do to inherit eternal life? Now, that's a pretty important question, isn't it? What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? In fact, it's a good question if it's being asked with, you know, a, a sincere desire to know uh, what a guy's got to do to, to uh, inherit eternal life, to get in on the grace of God, right? Well, in the next verse, we read Jesus' response to that question. In verse uh, 26, Luke 10, 26, he said, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? Now, Jesus asked this guy, in this way, you know, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? He asks him this because he's a lawyer, remember? It was a lawyer who asked this question. So don't think Matlock, okay? Not that kind of lawyer. This is a lawyer like, uh, Matlock was a lawyer, right? My references are bad today. Um, not that kind of lawyer, but a scholar and an expert in the law of God. So when he says what is written in the law, it's because this guy should know, right? And the reason they says, how does it read to you is because his, his interpretation, his, his opinion on this, his understanding, that's a good word, his understanding of what is written in the law should be, okay, should be valuable, all right? It, it shouldn't be, you know, just a random, like asking a random person on the street. This is a guy who should know and should have a, a good understanding. Well, here's what the lawyer says. He, let, let's see what his answer looks like. In verse 27, Luke chapter 10, verse 27, he answered, <clears throat> you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's a, a direct quote from the old law, okay? That's, that's him pulling an answer from his knowledge of the scriptures, okay? Sounds like a pretty good answer to me, right? Nothing wrong with that answer. Well, listen to Jesus' thoughts on what the lawyer has said here. In verse 28, when we continue, he said to him, you have answered correctly, right? Ding, 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 ding. You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So the lawyer isn't wrong, right? Jesus said, you're correct. This is the right answer that he's given. And he says, do this, okay? Do this and you will live. Now, we've got a little problem that kind of happens next. The lawyer has another, what's a guy got to do question. And this time, it's not such a good question. This time, it's, it's, it's the wrong question. It's the wrong question for the wrong reasons. It actually demonstrates that the lawyer knows the right answers, but is unwilling to do 
or at least has some serious hesitations with doing what the law says to do, doing what the right answer would tell you you need to do. Remember, Jesus said, yeah, right answer, do this and you'll live. Well, the, the, the lawyer's next question, his next what a guy got to do question is, is going to be a problem. Look at verse 29. It says, but wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? See how the Bible gives us this guy's motivation? Tells us why he's asking this, right? It says there uh, that he was wishing to justify himself. Now, how is he doing that? How is he trying to justify himself? Well, he's asking, what's a guy got to do? What must I do? How far must I go? Define the minimum requirements for me. And all of that for, for what? It's not to make sure only that he does do every single thing he has to do. He also, like we often do, wants to know, so what don't I have to do, right? If I know how far I have to go, then I know that anything beyond that, I'm okay if I don't do that. I don't have to do those things. See, he knew he had to love his neighbor. He quoted it. He knew it. He knew he had to love his neighbor, but he wanted to know, so who's my neighbor? Who can I justify not loving? Know what I mean? Sounds real bad when you put it that way, right? Who must I love? And who can I get away with not loving? Hmm. Sounds worse when you actually bring out and expound on what his what question is really asking, right? What's a guy gotta do? <laughs> is what he's asking here. This lawyer has an attitude that a lot of Christians are prone to having. I mean, it's, it's something we all do at, at different times. Some of us probably are a little worse at it. Some of us are probably a little further along in the maturing process, and maybe we're a little better at it, but we all are prone to having this attitude. Guys, as part of the body of Christ today, though, we should never have this least we can do kind of mentality. What's the least I can do? How far do I have to go? That sort of thing. Scripture makes it abundantly clear that we're to always give our absolute best and to always do the absolute most we can in a given situation. After all, that's what Jesus did for us, isn't it? Didn't Jesus give his absolute best and give his absolute uh, all? He did everything that was within his power to do, which was actually everything. After being asked, who's my neighbor? Jesus tells this parable in Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 30. It says, Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that same road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Hmm. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey, came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And we'll stop right there for a little bit. Now, as I said before, this parable, it gives us a picture of our responsibility to give our best and to give our all in any and all given situations. And it also gives us a picture of Jesus giving his best and his all. Um, if you have been part of our Tuesday night classes for a little bit, uh, 
well, it's last year now, uh, when we had our parables study, Ethan really brought uh, this fact out really well for us, really opened our eyes, I think, to this, uh, the, the, the picture of what Jesus has done for us that, that shows up in this parable. We're not going to focus on that completely, but it is a foundational understanding to see that this isn't just, we'll do what the Samaritan did. This is an example of Christ given in the picture of this Samaritan doing some really practical things. But think about the connection between uh, Jesus and the Samaritan man, right? In this parable, we're the Samaritan, or we're the, um, we're the, the, um, the beaten man. We're the, we're the one that's been stripped and beaten and left for dead. The Jericho Road represents this world, okay? The greatest robber that any of us uh, can and will encounter is sin. Robs us of everything that, that really matters, okay? That's the greatest robber that we're going to be uh, potentially taken captive to. And although many religious men have, have passed by mankind and, and really done nothing to help, just pass right on by, we've got this unexpected hero in Jesus, who shows up on the scene, right? God in the flesh. Who would have expected God to put on flesh, humble himself in that way, come and be willing to pay the cost, anything it took to take care of us, to heal our wounds, do all of these things, right? This good Samaritan reminds us of some of the amazing things Jesus has done for us. And Jesus came to where we are. John 1.14 tells us the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus showed us compassion like the Samaritan man, right? James 5.11 tells us the Lord, at the end of that verse, it says the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Jesus took care of our wounds, bandaged up. Well, more than bandaged, he healed our wounds, right? 1 Peter 2.24 says, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you are healed. You were healed, it says. Jesus brought us to a secure place and, and paid in advance for us. Again, like the Good Samaritan, but on a much higher scale, right? Colossians 1, 13 and 14 says, He rescued us from the domain of darkness, right? There we were, laying half dead, stripped, beaten. Actually, spiritually speaking, we were dead, right? And He rescued us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, it says, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. And then we all know Acts chapter 20, verse 28, that tells us that the church of God was purchased with his own blood paid for our sin in advance brought us to a secure place guys Jesus is the one who found us took care of us and it's his example here it's his example we focus on the good Samaritan and we will for the rest of this message but but it's Jesus's example that we're being called to follow here the, the good Samaritan parable though it does give us these very very practical lessons that we can put in into place today practical lessons for what it's going to look like in real life to do what Jesus did okay so lesson number one is this don't look touch <laughs> don't look touch uh, you've heard don't touch just look <laughs> right but but here the lesson is don't just look you're gonna have to touch Guys, there's no doubt this man was in a bad way, right? The Bible says he had been stripped. The Bible says he had been beaten. Scripture says he is at this point half dead. Guys, he needs much more than a Band-Aid at this point in time. He needs much more than an encouraging word in his particular condition right now. He needs much more than someone just seeing him, right? Uh, just noticing that he's there and, and uh, you know, understanding his condition. He needs more than that. He needs someone to come over and be willing to touch, be willing to get involved. In verse 31, Jesus said, by chance, 
a priest was traveling along that road. Jesus is setting up this parable like, you know, wow, what luck. A, a holy man just, just so happens to be passing by. What luck, right? The problem, of course, is he looked, but he wouldn't touch. He saw the man, and he definitely saw his condition. But he wouldn't go to the man and get involved, would he? As a priest, I'm sure he could think of a lot of different excuses, right? Come up with a number of excuses, like, uh, you know, being ceremonially unclean. If he, had, if he had touched this man, he would have been ceremonially unclean. And then, you know, what would the people do without a, a priest for a few days, you know? He's probably the only one in town, right? No, wrong. <laughs> Never mind the fact that there's a, a half-beaten or half-dead, beaten, stripped man lying on the side of the road. You know, again, we wouldn't want him to become ceremonially unclean. Guys, we have a tendency in the church today to fall into this same kind of thinking, this same line of thinking. We see people in messy situations, in imperfect circumstances, dangerous scenarios, hopeless-looking conditions anyway. And when that happens, we've got a decision to make. We got a decision. Are we going to just look at them? Are we going to survey their condition and see, boy, that looks pretty rough. That looks pretty messy. That looks like, you know, hmm, that's a, that's a can of worms just waiting to be opened. You know, we can look at it that way. What are we going to do, though? We just going to look? We're going to pretend like we don't notice? We're going to make excuses for why we're not going to get involved? Or are we going to follow Jesus' example? In verse 34, the Samaritan, no holy man by the Jews uh, in their eyes, right? This Samaritan stopped and he bandaged up this badly beaten man's wounds. He wasn't afraid to get down and, and, and help the man. He wasn't unwilling to get involved in this situation, whatever it might entail. He wasn't unwilling to get involved. He didn't just look, he touched don't be unwilling to personally get involved, to get your hands dirty, to, to get in the trenches with people, to help those who are in desperate situations. That's what Jesus did. That's the example we've been given. The second lesson about giving our best and our all just like Jesus is this. Don't avoid, invest. Don't avoid, invest. You'll notice in verse 31 and verse 32 with the priest and the Levite here, they both literally took steps to avoid the man who needed help. The, the priest and the Levite saw the man, they understood his condition, and they chose to go around him. Do you see that in the text? They passed by on the other side of the road, the furthest they could be from being in a position to help the man. Right? Let me not just step over him. Let me not just, you know, kind of step around him. Let me go to the other side of the road. Th this happens, you know, um, Roxanne, I don't know if you've ever seen this in the neighborhood. You see uh, somebody walking a dog, you know, uh, about seven houses up, and they go ahead and switch over to the other side of the road, don't they? You know, or somebody's walking with a stroller or somebody's jogging and, and they don't want to pass right by you because I don't know, afraid you might say hello, afraid that, you know, little boy is going to attack them, you know, Roxanne's a little beagle. I don't know what the deal is, but they'll cross the other side. I got golden doodles. They're not scary, you know, but people get on the other side of the road. And that's what these guys did. You know, they're like, I don't, I don't want to be anywhere near this guy. I don't want to happen to interact with this person. I'm going to the other side of the road. They did their best to avoid the situation altogether. But Jesus shows us an example of not avoiding, but investing in people, right? In verse 34, again, we see the Samaritan man poured his own oil, his own wine on this beaten man's wounds, right? In verse 35, he paid the innkeeper his own money to provide for this man's needs, to provide for his uh, a safe place for him to, to stay and to rest up and to heal up. He even told the innkeeper that he would be back and pay even more when he returned if the guy needed it. 
If he needed any more care, any longer stay than what this money will cover, I'll, I'll be back and I'll pay more. I'll cover it. Here in the United States, we've become accustomed to, to programs. There's a program available to help everyone. And sometimes we even look at the church like, like it's one of these programs. The church's money, it's God's money. It's contributed by you and me, but it's not a program to refer people to. Guys, when people need help, help them if you can. That's, it's that simple. You don't have to wait for the church treasurer to show up with the checkbook. You don't have to wait for somebody to fill out a form or to visit some office somewhere. If you can help, help. We're Christians. Okay? Yeah, that pot that, belo that belongs to the church is our, well, not our, it's God's money. But it's money we contributed that, that he blessed us with and that we faithfully gave. So sure, it's not wrong to do it that way. That's not what I'm saying at all. But I'm saying sometimes we get in this, this program mindset that, well, we've got we to go and go through the, all the, the you know, lines of chains of command and ask this person to go through that. Sometimes you just got to help right then and there. If they need 20 bucks, you got to just give them the 20 bucks. You just got to help right there, right then and there. People don't always need a program. Sometimes they just need you. And they need the resources that you have on you at the moment. Jesus was a great example of this. The, think about it. The program in his day was the temple and the priest. That was the program. You need help? You go to those guys. You, you need some spiritual counseling? You need some spiritual information? You go to those guys. They're the ones who are going to help you. Well, how well was that going? Well, in the parable... <laughs> those guys are the ones who passed by. Those are the guys who went right on by this beaten man who needed help. But Jesus came and invested everything that he had in us, even investing his life for us. Let's follow Jesus' example. Don't avoid people. Invest. Invest, okay? The third lesson here about giving our best and our all for Jesus, or like Jesus, is this. Don't pass carry. Don't pass, carry. And this isn't talking about, you know, concealed carry or anything like that. That's not what I'm talking about. Okay, settle down, everybody. All right. The priest and the Levite in verses 31 and 32, they're both said to have passed on by the man, right? We already talked about how they avoided, they went around. They, they passed by, okay? Both of the verses tell us that they saw him. Uh, the priest and the Levite, they saw, but they made a conscious decision to not help. They passed by. When we see situations, you know, even anything like this, remotely like this, these kind of messy situations, how many times do we pass by? Maybe the priest and the Levite thought things like, like we do sometimes. If I pass on by, somebody else will help. I'm, I'm going to pass on by right now because I'm not the right person to help. There, there are other people more qualified than I am. There's people that, that are, are better equipped for this, so I'm going to pass on by. I'll pass on by for now, but if he's still here later, I'll probably help, maybe. I'll pass on by for now because I'm too busy right now. I'm going to pass on by, but if he needs me, he knows that he can just pick up the phone and call me. We say that a lot, don't we? When people are beaten down by life, beaten down by sin, beaten down by relationships, you know, hurt by addictions, paralyzed by fear, immobilized by depression and anxiety. They don't need to be passed by. They need to be carried. You need to pick these people up and, and carry them to the destination they need to get to, right? Carry them in the right direction where they need to go. They need to, we need to follow the example of, of what we have in the parable here and the example of Jesus and carry these people. In verse 34 of the parable, we see the Samaritan man put this victim uh, up on his own beast, right? Instead of passing on by, he picked the man up. 
Instead of expecting this guy, you know, to get up and take the first couple steps on his own, you know, to, to prove that, that he deserves the help, you know, that he really wants to help himself. And so I'll get involved once he proves that he can help himself. Instead of doing that, he recognized that this guy wasn't in any shape for that. He needed to be picked up and carried. That's what this guy needed right now. We got to be like the Samaritan man here. Sometimes we need to pick people up and carry them to that next town. Even when we're on a journey ourselves, like the Samaritan man, even when we're worn out, when we're exhausted, uh, you know, ourselves, mentally, physically, whatever it may be. Guys, many times, if we're, if we're honest with ourselves, there's still something left in the tank to, to help others, right? We've done it with our kids, We've done it with close friends and family members. We've done it with parents. We've done it with grandparents. We've been totally drained. But somehow we muster up a little more mental and physical energy to do what needs to be done. But, but how many times do we just go ahead and say, well, I can't carry anybody right now. I'm doing all these other things. I got all these other things going. I got all these other excuses. We need to follow Jesus' example and give our best and give our all. Fourth and final lesson about giving our best and our all like Jesus is this. Don't be stiff, be flexible. The priests, the Levite, the Samaritan, they all uh, combine, their stories here combine to teach us a lesson about the kind of stiffness that is going to prevent help from happening and the kind of flexibility that's required to make sure that help is a possibility for us, okay? I know it's a parable, so I know these people aren't real, but they do represent reality, they represent a reality that we can understand and we recognize and we can understand it. So if we look at the reality of the situation here, uh, Jesus is uh, presenting three travelers who would have all been on their way from somewhere or to somewhere, right? They were doing something. Again, I know they're not real people, but reality says th they aren't just arbitrarily walking back and forth between two cities. They're, they're leaving somewhere and they're going somewhere. The priest may have been serving at the temple. And he's on his way back to his home in Jericho. The Levite may have, you know, been heading to the market or, you know, Kroger, whatever, insert whatever reference you want, you know, on some kind of errand. I don't know. The Samaritan were told, though, specifically that he's on a journey. Now, when the Bible says that somebody's on a journey, I mean, if we said that, we don't use that term a whole lot today in that way. Uh, we don't phrase it like that. But um, when, when we're told that somebody's on a journey, that's not just like a daily commute kind of thing, right? This isn't just like, well, he, 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 he goes and walks a mile every day. You know, that's not what we're talking about here. He is on a journey. We might call him, you know, he's on the road right now. He's traveling, you know. Um, well, why is this so-and-so here? Well, they're traveling. They're on the road. Well, this isn't just normal course of business. This is, they're on, they're on a journey. They're going to be gone a little while. They're doing something. We don't know what the journey was for here for this guy, but he's in the middle of heading from somewhere to somewhere for something, for a specific purpose. Now, the priest and the Levite, whatever they're on their way for, they weren't swayed from what they were doing, right? They, they kept right on heading to where they were heading to do whatever it was they were going to go do. But the Samaritan, he took the time to help. We saw that. If we look at what he did in verses 33 through 35, we see that he added uh, whatever he was doing. He added helping this man into and onto whatever he was doing that day. He's like, well, I'll, I'll do this as well. Uh, I'll, in fact, I'll do this first. This guy needs immediate help. I'll jump right in and I'll help immediately. I won't wait. I won't say, well, let me get this done first and then I'll come back. I won't make excuses. I'll start helping right here, right now. He also added a stop on his journey to, in Jericho, right? He got the guy to Jericho, got him set up. We already talked about how he spent his own money and all that. But the fact that he put him on his beast and, and walked him to Jericho. 
got him in this place, got him all set up, got his, his long-term care set up before he left Jericho, and notice he even made plans to return if necessary. Hey, I'm going to swing back by and make sure that he doesn't need something else after I get done. I don't know where he was going, but he's, he's going to come back to Jericho. He, he is uh, doing everything he can. What would we call this? Going out of your way, right? We say he was willing to go out of his way. That's the phrase we would use a lot. It's a shame that going out of your way, that phrase kind of has a negative connotation now. It's, it's, it's um, I mean, it can be considered a good thing that somebody's willing to do it, but, but why is it a good thing if they're willing to do it? Because we think, boy, that's more than you have to do, right? Kind of in this least we can do, what's a guy got to do mentality again, right? We, we have these thoughts like, you know, we don't want people to go out of their way for us, you know. They don't need to do that. We consider it inefficient and, and maybe sometimes unreasonable that someone would go out of their way. I get told that all the time because I don't really know where I'm going half the time. I mean, I know where I'm going. I just don't know how to get there. And so they're like, which way did you go? Well, um, I turned right at Arby's. And you, Highway 7? You went, you went Highway 7? You didn't take 421? You know, anyway, it, it's unreasonable. I went out of my way, right? Literally went out of my way. I do that and it's considered inefficient, unreasonable. We don't understand why sometimes people will go out of their way. We have certain people in our lives that we would never go out of our way for, right? Because they've proven that they don't deserve it, so we think. We're appalled when a, a person's request just assumes that we would go out of our way. Sometimes we won't go out of our way because we say things like, I got a yard to mow, I got a house to take care of, got money to manage, a garden to tend, family to visit, you know, events to attend, shopping to do, lists to make, television to watch, trips to take, plans to make, so on, so on, so on. All these lists, we, we, we're, we're on such a journey all the time, always going from here to there, always doing something, right? Got all these things to do. Many of us have created lives where everything requires us to go out of our way because they're so packed full. We're always on some kind of journey. This Samaritan man, he's an example for us. He's right in the middle of a journey. I don't know what his life was like normally. I don't know how packed full it may or may not have been, but we know right here, right now, he is in the middle of a journey, but he was flexible when it came to helping others who needed help. He was willing to add helping hurt people to his list of things to do on, on that day. What about you? When you're on your way somewhere or in the middle of something, are you so stiff that you can't take a moment or take several moments, totally throw your plans aside when somebody desperately needs help? I'm not saying live a chaotic lifestyle where when someone says, you know, hey, are you in the middle of something? To just lie and be like, no, absolutely nothing. What can I do for you? That's not what we're saying here. But when someone is in a similar situation, whether it's spiritually, uh, mentally, physically, th they've been stripped and beaten and laying on the side of the road and they need picked up and helped, carried, cared for, all that stuff. Are you going to say, gosh, that's a really bad, I've, mm, I'm worried about them. And go to the other side of the road and walk on by because you're on a journey. You're in the middle of your day. You've got so many plans, so many things to do. Are you going to be flexible enough to create time and space to help those hurting people, those people who are in need? Let's follow the example of Jesus. He's, his, his example is the ultimate example of going out of your way, isn't it? 
Jesus went out of his way to help us. He's the, the greatest example we have of this. So we got four practical lessons today. Don't look, touch. Don't avoid, invest. Don't pass, carry. Don't be stiff, be flexible. All four of these, these are, these are hands-on, go and do these today kind of lessons. But maybe you notice we skipped over the most important thing in this text. Talking about compassion versus religious obligation. Compassion versus religious obligation. This is the difference between what motivated the priest and the Levite and what motivated the Samaritan. It's the difference between what motivated Jesus and what motivated the religious elite in his day. And in the immediate context of this parable and the reality of Jesus going back and forth with this lawyer on all of this, it's the difference between what the lawyer said he had to do, his right answer for uh, receiving eternal life, that right answer he gave. It's the difference between that answer and then the motivation behind him asking, and who is my neighbor? Right? Compassion versus religious obligation. The priest and the Levite probably felt like their religious obligations were, were pretty well taken care of, pretty, pretty done and dusted. They, they did their service, their various forms of service that they were both responsible for in the temple, right, in their respective ways. They went to synagogue. They did what was required of them. In Jesus' day, the religious elite, the Pharisees, all these guys, the scribes, they were doing things that made them appear very religious. But Jesus, and you would have read this as well in Luke, chapter 11, I believe, yesterday, Jesus had some words to say to them, you know, hey, you do this, and you do this, and you do this, and it looks real good, but, but you're neglecting the really important things. You're, you're leaving out things that you, if you're going to do these other things, you shouldn't do them at the expense of mercy, compassion, right, the, the love of God, that sort of stuff, justice, you know, can't leave that stuff out. And then the lawyer here, man, he, he knew what God's laws said. He knew the right answers, didn't he? But what was he trying to do? He's trying to create a checklist. Trying to, to know what his religious obligations were. What do I have to do? In Jesus' parable, verse 33, it says a Samaritan man, who, he saw the beaten man, uh, he felt compassion. The Samaritan guy, he felt compassion. That's a real important word in scripture representing a real important concept that we need to grasp. We see it from Jesus all over the scriptures, right? You've heard me mention the scripture several times, but, but you know, we know what he did as a result of compassion. He felt compassion and he healed the sick, right? He, he was moved with compassion, the scripture says, and he touched the blind, moved with compassion and cleansed the diseased. He felt compassion, the Bible says, and he gave life to those who had lost it. He felt compassion and he taught those that the Bible says that Jesus himself felt were like lost sheep, like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus' compassion, when we look at it, it always compelled him to help, to do something, to not pass on by, to not avoid, to not do these things that we see uh, the priest and the Levite doing, right? The, his compassion compelled him to touch to invest, to carry, to be flexible. I, I love this quote, and I, I stole it from Ethan. It's short and sweet. Compassion is not passive. It rises up and meets the need. Compassion isn't just somebody has a soft heart, and they go, golly, they need a, a, a card or a phone call. Compassion rises up and meets the need. In verse 36 of our text, we read it earlier, Jesus asked the lawyer, 
about the parable, right? He says, you know, what, what do you think about the, the priest, the Levite, the Samaritan? You know, how do you feel about, you know, who's the good example here? Verse 36, he said, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And verse 37 records his response to Jesus. Okay, here's what the, what the lawyer said back to Jesus. He said, one who showed mercy toward him, right? That's the same word for compassion. The one who showed mercy toward him. Then what did Jesus say? Go and do the same. That's why I say this is the most important. The compassion versus religious obligation, lesson five after you thought we were all done with four. This is the most important right here because this is what Jesus uh, hones in on and says, go and do the same. Church, we've got fantastic examples from Jesus uh, in the parable of the Good Samaritan and in the um, you know, eternity saving work that he did in the cross rising up from the tomb, sitting at the right hand of God for us now, making intercession. We've got these practical examples from the text, from the parable, and then we've got his life as the ultimate example. And like Jesus said, go and do the same.